It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Hello, you're listening to the podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name's Fergus Collins, and I'm your host. And in this episode, I'm back at the Nep Wildlands in Sussex. Now, you might remember in last week's episode, I ventured out onto a magical nightingale survey through this strange and wild landscape. This week, I'm meeting one of the masterminds behind this astonishing rewilding project, Isabella Tree, who with her husband, Charlie Burrell, turned that what was once a dairy farm into this wild haven. Later, join me and the team where we talk about spring in the countryside, share our own encounters with nature, and catch up on your emails. And please do get in touch. My email is editor at countryfile.com, and our favourite email of the week will receive a book from the revered podcast library. But now let's head down to NEP. I mean, it, it's, it's really beyond anything we could have imagined um, 20-odd years ago when we began it. I think... You know, our backs were really against the wall with farming. It was arable and dairy. And um, it was really just a decision to get out of farming because, you know, we were one and a half million pounds in debt. We just, you know, we hit the buffers. Um, And the thought about going over to nature, letting the land do itself rather than forcing things on it, um, was seemed very appealing. Um, and yes, if I we, I think that, so intense and, and <laughs> lots of inputs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so <laughs> doing something with the land rather than battling with it all the time really was our kind of thought. And I think we, you know, we th- thought, well, when we when we you know started adopting this kind of rather new idea of rewilding and sort of letting it letting it go and then allowing free roaming animals in to mimic the processes that the great herds of megafauna would have imposed upon the landscape in the past we just thought well, wouldn't it be wonderful if if we get some nature back you know if we have you know we were really really depleted land and it was almost impossible to there was no, nothing really of no, notable for nature on our land at all one tiny pocket of 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 um uh, wildflower meadow had been left but tiny and were there nightingales here at that time and I, we had um a nightingale survey I think in I think it was 1999 um, by a BTO nightingale survey and I think there were a few nightingales then but by the time we had um, started the rewilding project in earnest so the sort of late 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 uh, the sort of early two, 2000s we lost nightingales we think altogether I mean really? we weren't oh, here we just so... weren't hearing any um, uh, there was one year, I think, we had a, a, a couple, but there'd been a, a huge area of, of coppice that had been taken out near Arundel, and all their nightingales had dispersed. So it might have been we just had a couple that had flown in from there, and then nothing. I think it was about 2005 we started hearing nightingales. Um, and then probably seven or so years later, nightingales in numbers we just couldn't believe. You know, we'd, we had friends who 
had remembered listening to Nightingales as children and were longing to hear them again. So we ended up taking, doing Nightingale dinners, you know, and, oh, and then taking people out, to, out after dinner to listen to them. And people just breaking down in tears. And, you know, we were hearing not just one nightingale in a patch, but you might have heard it this morning. You know, you've got three or four oh, we had competing. Six. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. we had, we had two, two at a time yeah. kind of sparking yeah. each other off. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I had a lump in my throat yeah. and to hear them was, well, gosh, yeah. refilled my nightingale tank. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. Um, did you have a business plan at the beginning then? Because I think one of the things is that you weren't making any money. And was this just like a, this could, this could potentially make us money? Or was it just like, we, we can't do anything with the land, we mess with no, it to nature? We, we didn't really have a business plan, to be honest. I mean, what, what helped us, we, we had uh, government money in the form of um, agri-environment subsidies. So that allowed us, um, and the, the, the basic farm payment, as it was then, which just pays you for owning farmland... And I think it was, in, you know, it's iniquitous in my view and is rightly about to go. But it did enable us to switch from farming into rewilding without hitting the pocket. Um, it was intended, I believe, basic farm payment to um, allow farmers to think alternatively about what they could, you know, instead of being driven purely by a named crop that you were subsidising that particular year, to think about the alternatives, to, to think differently, but very few farmers did. And we used it as a chance to get out of farming, let the land lie fallow. Um, uh, we received then some grants from Countryside Stewardship um, grant money for re restoring the, the parkland around the house, which had never been ploughed until the Dig for Victory um, in the Second World War, um, and kind of took it from there in incremental stages, Ironically, we couldn't at the time attract higher-level stewardship funding um, because we weren't in an area that was targeted by them because it was so depleted of oh, nature. Really? It just wasn't seen to be. It wasn't worthwhile. seemed to be. It yeah. wasn't a target area, um, and now it is. We've made it a target area, which is so, so now surrounding farms are mu much more likely to get a, a, a higher-level stewardship. Yeah, but what we hadn't anticipated, I guess, was the the income streams that came with it because. We couldn't have predicted how successful the wildlife comeback was going to be. Um, and not just in terms of the rare species, you know, the nightingales you've been listening to and turtle doves. I don't know if you heard a turtle not dove. Not today, but no. someone took a photo of one. Yeah. And uh, again, a bird that I remember yeah. from my childhood. Yeah. And, very and cuckoos, you've heard loads of them. Lots of cuckoos. Yeah. Ridiculous numbers of cuckoos. <laughs> I actually got tired of hearing them. <laughs> um, it's just magical. Loads of cuckoos. Yeah, so the rarity of the species is, is extraordinary, but the biomass, the sheer numbers, the volume. Um, and we had a couple of years ago um, a, a, a BTO breeding bird survey, and it looks like we have one of the densest populations of breeding songbirds in Britain from nothing. Mm -hmm. So it's suddenly been this extraordinary um, bounce back of nature, which then means that people want to come and listen to it and experience it. And so we started up an ecotourism business, I mean, just very small, um, in about nine. Uh, 2006 I suppose and that is now one of our biggest our biggest income streams but it's also you know all these farm buildings the one we're sitting in now the cow barn you know you can imagine the cost just keeping the roof on and they're not bringing in, in an income when you're a farmer they're just part of the infrastructure but now we can capitalize on that and we can renovate them turn them into 
office space, light industrial use, workshops, spaces like this. Can I move my magazine down here? <laughs> <laughs> so yes. it's perfect. And lots yeah. of people now wanting to have mm. space where they can look out onto nature instead of sitting in a traffic jam. Uh, I, I can see that would be perfect. I mean, gosh, there's yoga, there's all sorts of yeah. things here. People coming on some retreats. And yeah. I met people in the campsite who clearly had come just to for a sort of mindful yeah. escape. And, yeah. Uh, and the interesting thing is, you know, you know, just thinking about this sort of rewilding and, and people, quite often I think it's depicted as, you know, it has nothing to do with people and you're wanting, you know, to push people out of nature. It's actually completely the re- reverse. And we found that um, it's, it's really bringing back life into rural communities. I and mean, when we were farming, we, we employed 23 people. We now employ more than 50 and we're about to open a cafe and a farm shop, which will employ probably another 30. Oh, my goodness. So um, the buildings like these that are, you know, rented from us by other companies are employing 200 people. So that's over 250 people back in this rural economy. Perhaps walking out during their lunch breaks and... Exactly. And appreciating the, Going to the pub after work, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah, spending um, money like Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Um, so that, that, there's a business model there. Mm. But obviously, at the beginning, I've read Wilding, uh, which was a terrific book and a great um, insight into kind of some of the challenges you've faced along the way. And some of them seem to be the attitudinal challenges of other, of, of perhaps other, the farming community and some neighbouring folk. Um, how did you, what, what sort of things did you, did you struggle with and how did you kind of get past it? Um, well, I think it's, it's really difficult because... Um, and we found it difficult too, making all these changes in the beginning, because you know I think we've grown up with such a strong aesthetic ingrained in us from children of what the British countryside should look like. It's in all our, you know, children's books. It's on TV. It's our it's green and pre- pleasant land in magazines. Well. <laughs> it's tightly yeah. controlled. Um, you know, hedges are clipped within an inch of their life. No berries on them in the winter for the birds. Um, isolated tiny pockets of ancient woodland. Um, canalised rivers you know we all have it under control and it's a linear patchwork that we think looks beautiful and gives us security and prosperity and it's obviously anything but that that landscape is now incredibly fragile it's polluted it's losing topsoil because we're farming we're ploughing the whole time and drenching the soil in chemicals it's not good for food security even Um, so it's trying to unlearn that. Then you get, you know, uh, uh, someone like us coming along and thinking it's a good idea to just let the land go. And the first thing you see is ragwort, which is just, you know, people turn apoplectic when they see ragwort. Um, I've been employed to pull ragwort when I was <laughs> yeah. a teenager. And yes. uh, I always felt a little bit bad about it. And then later I realised I shouldn't have been doing that. No, native native plant, there's no need to do it. Um obviously shouldn't be um, made into hay and shouldn't be anywhere near horse paddocks, but otherwise it's the most important, powerful native plant for for wildlife. But, um, yeah, so you see your beautiful view turning into ragwort, thistles, nettles, brambles, and you think, what the hell is going on? And it's an affront Mm. to your sensibilities. Um, So there's kind of little you can do, I think, in the early days, because it is... it develops very fast, rewilding. You know, the pioneer plants come in, it looks incredibly messy, and when people aren't used to seeing that mess, they're outraged, and understandably. But 
then it begins to settle down and then you get your um, your oak saplings naturally regenerating in that thorny scrub you see things starting to mature the the pace of change slows down a bit and then you get your headline species if you're lucky with your nightingales your turtle doves and things coming back and slowly I think we found people thinking well actually there is something interesting going on there and it's not quite as hideous as we thought it was going to be um and slowly i think it's just by showing by doing that is the most powerful we even had a letter from a woman who wrote a furious your sincerely disgusted letter in the early days about um how um charlie my husband had um turned something beautiful into an abomination and his (laughs) grandparents would be rolling in their graves and she wrote a, an apology a few years ago oh, and gosh, said, I'm lovely. sorry, I sent a really unforgivable letter and I just want you to tell you that now I walk through NEP every day and I think it is still beautiful, but it's just beautiful in a very different way. So attitudes can change. So I think attitudes can change. And, I mean, with us too, I mean, we, we, had, we had to change our own attitudes. Mm. You know, our, one of the, the best things you can do in a sort of rewilding sense, I guess, is to leave dead trees standing. You know, it's one habitat that we we are really missing in our landscape it's where wild bees nest it's where um, owls where so many bats nest which are now having to find hollows in our roofs because they've got no hollow trees in the landscape and just shortly after we began rewilding we left a dead oak an oak that was dying it was kind of overwhelmed I think by nitrate runoff it was in a kind of low corner of a field right in the view from our windows and we had to keep a steady hand not to get the chainsaw out and chop it down. Yes, <laughs> and now, you know, it, it became the most amazing, beautiful universe of life as it began to die. Yeah, when we talk about rewilding, uh, that, I mean, it's an interesting word and some people still seem to find it quite a difficult one to come to terms with. I, I, how do you reassure the farmers who feels like a threat to not so much their livelihood but to their identity yes and a cultural culture yes way yeah. of particularly in wales where, where yeah. there's a sort of welsh language is associated yeah. with farming yeah. and, and so there's the kind of we must protect this at all costs uh, absolutely and i think it's really important to bring farmers on board i think you know we're not talking about rewilding the whole of britain and you know all our cultural landscapes being lost under ragwort and thistle yeah. and um and nightingales but i think it's um um, we know we need to restore um, the, the sort of life support systems on which our, our food production survives. So we would, I think, describe rewilding as farming's greatest ally. Um, anyway, we're not talking in terms of, you know, uh, of, of, of covering all, you know, agriculture. We'll always need land for food production. Um, but we can provide a kind of webbing of nature running through our agricultural landscapes and all our landscapes that will provide a sort of life support system. So we need to attract water. We've got to have microclimates. We've got to have trees where water is going to be attracted in, held in and and restored into the water tables. We've got to prevent flooding. We've got to restore soil. We've got to provide pollinating insects for crops. We've got to provide natural pest control. Rewilding can do all of that. Just one tiny example, we, we had um, uh, someone studying dung beetles here. So obviously since rewilding and we've got free-roaming animals, our dung beetle populations have just rocketed and we've got 
amazing dung beetle, the, one of our biggest, called Geotrupes mutator. It's the vi- violet door beetle. Is that the huge, huge, huge one? Thing, yes. And it's a tunneler, so it goes right down. And that hasn't been seen in Sussex for 50 years. So how it found us, I have no idea, but they're all That's over. Extraordinary. I know. So it's sort of... It would have been live, surviving in a tiny pocket, and they do fly quite long distances, I believe. Oh but it found us and has since proliferated. Um, but on an organic farm next to us, on the same soil, uh, this uh, PhD student counted 500 um, dung beetles in a day. Pretty respectable number. On NEP, nearly 12,000 in a day. And so it's off the Richter scale. And one of the reasons, we think, is that dung beetles are active all year round. Most farms, even an organic farm, you know, you'll bring your animals in in the winter. Um, and so you're depriving those dung beetles of sustenance. So the, your, your populations will collapse again. So if you've got ribbons of rewilding around your areas that you can then replenish every year with huge numbers of dung beetles... You know, that's just one species that you're resupplying into the farm landscape every year. But where I think we see the most positive change is we're in our Wheel to Waves um, project. So we are, um, and this was um, amazing. It's been it's, the catalyst for it was a, a farmer who's now become a great friend. He's called James Baird. Um, he um, called Charlie, my husband, during lockdown and said he just read Wilding. And he had, was really intrigued. So he came here to check our cattle out, just to make sure they were as healthy as I said they were in the book. <laughs> he came two or three times without us knowing and said no, he was very impressed. And he sort of had a complete sort of, not kind of epiphany, I guess, but he definitely has had um, some sort of you know, reaction and feels that it's now time for him to give back for nature. He's a conventional farmer. He grows peas for bird's eye. He's a brilliant farmer. He's not going to change. He's going to carry on farming. But he also feels he needs to give back to nature. And so he rang and he said, at the end of your book, you said you had um, a, a sort of a dream that maybe one day you could create a wildlife corridor from net to the sea. And he said, I am that bit on the sea. Oh I have the farm at Climping Gap, which is about the only place on that coast south of us between Brighton and Bognor that hasn't been built on. And if you can connect with me, um, and we can persuade farmers and landowners in between us, we'll have this wildlife corridor where we can connect with the whole Help the Kelp marine restoration project off the coast, all the way over the chalk downlands to the Weald, and then Ashdown Forest got to hear of it and said, we hear you've got this really interesting Wheel to Waves project going. Can we join? So we said, absolutely. So we will be 25 miles from us to the coast, to the south, and then to the northeast, we'll join up with the Ashdown Forest, that wonderful heathland area, yes, yeah, which yeah. is also feeling very besieged by development around yeah. it. It's, it's isolated and it needs to connect. For one farmer, what they do to help create that corridor may be completely different from somebody else. So they may decide to go entirely pesticide-free. Amazing. I mean, that would already make their land much more permeable to wildlife. Or they may just allow their hedges to grow out to double the width. Um, um, Or they might help um, restore the floodplain. So it's just tiny baby steps that eventually, you know, you hope people think, well, actually, that was quite easy to do and so much fun. Your, Your new book? The Book of Wilding. Um, it's a sort of manual for 
people to who don't know where to begin. Well, it's not entirely a pocketbook. If you fall asleep oh. underneath it, it could kill you. <laughs> but, well, there's a lot in there, yeah. Uh, and yeah. also um, guidance for gardeners as well, which was... Yes, so, little garden, not much bigger than these tables. So, so it was really in response to this amazing mailbag we get from people who visit NEP and, you know, are, are feel galvanised to do something. I think, you know, we're... We spend so much of our time under this kind of black cloud of eco-anxiety and the enormity of climate change and biodiversity loss. How can a single person make a difference? And um, so you stick your head in the sand, really, and you just try to ignore it. But if you come to somewhere like NEP, where you can see how quickly nature bounces back, it's really exciting. And I think it's it's empowering as well. Um, and so the people who write to us could could have a hundred acres, a small farm. They could be, in, you know, thinking of forming a farm cluster and talking to their neighbours and actually doing a project together. They could have an orchard or look after a graveyard or have a back garden. I even had an email the other day saying, "How do I reweld my window box?" Okay. And absolutely, <laughs> yeah, you can. Of course, yeah. you can. Um, and if you connect with with somebody else with another window box on the next door building you become start becoming stepping stones for wildlife so um every every spare inch that we can we can generate nature allow nature to come back we should be doing that and i think quite often you know um uh academics um uh, journalists i don't know i mean like to try and categorize rewilding but I think what's so wonderful about it is that it's an indefinable word. We know the approach is basically allowing nature to, to take its head, to get into the driving seat and, and to let go a bit. And so what, what we felt very strongly was we wanted to show rewilding as a spectrum and everyone is on it somewhere and can have a part to play in nature recovery. So at the, at the wildest end of your spectrum, you would have Yellowstone National Park, where you don't have to do any interventions. There's apex predators. Well, they've intervened to bring them back. But now it's pretty much, you can leave it completely on its own. When you get to NEP, at NEP stage, you can still have free-roaming animals. You can have lots of natural processes that manage themselves. Um, basically, the only management we do here is, is control the numbers of animals we have because we don't have apex predators. And um, so we're a smaller the, system. Your, so your we're, we're the wolf. The, yeah, exactly. But the smaller you go, the more <coughs> interventions you need to do, in a way. To, yeah. to, it's not about just completely taking your hands off the steering wheel. You have to become the keystone species in your space. So if you're in a garden, um, one of the most positive things you could do for um, wildlife is to put in a pond. So a nature-friendly gardener might, might put in a pond. It would probably be pretty even around the edges, very neat, um, it might even be the same depth the whole way across. Very pretty, great. It would still attract, you know, wonderful insects and um, hopefully amphibians and, and birds. But if you're a rewilder, you would be thinking in terms of the natural processes that are out there in the wilder landscape. So you'd think like a beaver. And you'd go go at your pond thinking, well, let's put in some branches, some woody debris. So it's the stuff that normally I might pull out of the pond thinking, that's going to precisely, rot and poison it. Precisely. Oh, okay. And so that rotting down is going to create algae, which is going to be food for the aquatic invertebrates, which is going to be food for the whole food chain in that, in that, um, in that pond. 
Um, it's also going to provide some shelter and from for tiny fish um, hiding from your all your birds and you know that sure. might be flying in, um, uh, and from the larger fish. So you know you've suddenly you know, just provided a little micro habitat by putting in a sort of semi beaver dam, um, <laughs> and then you might think like a water buffalo and paddle around the edges, so creating some lovely niches of. Um, you know, little puddles that will um, receive the um, aquatic plants that will come in on the feet of birds. You've got your, you know, places for your amphibians to, to spawn, but you'd also have different depths of your pond and perhaps not worry so much if one area of your pond dries out in the summer because that ephemeral bank, that, that drying out, actually there's loads of insects and that specialise in a, in a wet patch in the winter and a drier bit in summer. We we just have to think like 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 beavers. That's interesting. Think like a beaver. That's a great uh, a great way forward. So, would a pond be your number? Because that's my next question. What would be the one thing that you would suggest to any someone who has a garden, or, or yes, what would be the one thing that could make a difference? Firstly, stop using pesticides. Stop put put all the chemicals away. Never ever ever use any chemical again. And be careful about the chemicals you're accidentally using, even if you're really aware. Even if you're chemically aware, you may be worming your dog. You may be, you know, putting flea so ointment on your dog. Yeah, we, yeah, we do that. Yeah. Um, those, and so, so don't do that. So there's plenty of other herbal alternatives. And anyway, you don't need to routinely do it. Mm. You know, only do it if there is a problem. Uh, Dave Goulson, you know, is wonderful. Yes, you know, yes, uh, he, he goes as far, I think, as saying, um, don't let your dog pee in your garden if you're giving it um, wormers. Because, you know, that... All that is going into your garden. Um, it's powerful stuff. Remember him saying, don't let your dog swim in rivers. And, and don't let your dog, if you've, if you've anointed them with those, if they've got a flea collar on or you've been putting that drop stuff on their necks, don't let them swim in with rivers because it's highly water-soluble. Water it will be killing all the insects in the river. Oh, my goodness. So this is something. So that would yeah. be the number one thing. Stop, stop, using, stop using chemicals. So and, and then instantly, you know, you've got your insects back. Yeah. And then everything goes from there. And when we think of, you know, the things we do for nature in our gardens, and we do this as well, you know, we put up bird boxes and we have a bird table. But actually, why are we even doing that? Because actually what's much healthier for the, for the birds is to have the natural habitat, the, 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 the thick, thorny hedge to nest in. Got a much better microclimate. It's open to the air. It doesn't build up pathogens and um, mites like a like a nest box would. You know, providing the natural habitat for for um, animals and birds in your garden is is you know thinking about what they would be in nature. Um, you know, leaving your seed heads um, for the birds instead of cutting them down and making everything cutting neat. Cutting them down and then putting up a load of sunflower seeds. And then seeds. putting up a load of sunflower seeds, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, again, it's it's about shifting our aesthetic into thinking, actually, those dead, dry stalks with the... And in the frost, they look absolutely beautiful. You know, we yeah. we must stop tidying up all the time. I think that's that's a really good message because I, I, I mean, I'm a personal level, I, I have the local park, which is a boring square of green, but the council are trying to let there's a no-mo policy for parts of it and it can hedge grow a bit but the anger from some local people yeah. is is change I think it's change yes. and I think maybe it's that what, how you explained it earlier is actually 
they're, they're used to their view of the park exactly. being a certain way. Exactly. And, they think it's and, and, and people don't it. like change. And I think sometimes it's, it's easiest to think of where it hits you, where it hurts, which is usually in the pocket. So where would we rather our taxpayers' money went? In the local council mowing our verges every week or into free school meals for kids, mm. you know, or care homes? You know, actually, there's a huge cost to mowing those dams. Yes, you know? <laughs> yes, and it's petrol and it's all those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. So, I, and that's probably quite. Good. I yeah. might use those arguments <laughs> next time instead of harumphing. <laughs> so, my, my sort of final question really is: Are there other NEPs beginning to spring up around the country that, uh, that there are. people have taken on board? I mean, I make think money out of this? yes, and I think there's about a hundred thousand hectares of land now being rewilded like NEP. So that, that will be in actual kind of rewilding hotspots, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and more coming um, online all the time. But I think, you know, our interest, particularly in this book, you know, it's, yes, we're definitely um, trying to, to explain the principles of large-scale rewilding, but it's how do you join those biodiversity hotspots up? Um, and how do we get them feeding into our cities how do we as citizens start changing the mindset of our local council and ha- start having trees in our in our streets again so that we can reduce the the air pollution which we know is a huge cost to us to the nhs but to people's lives it's a you know it's it's a a real issue that the health in cities from air pollution which trees can solve. And yet we're cutting them down in and yet like we're, Bristol, we're, Sheffield, exactly, Lumeth, is it? All exactly. Sort of Cambridge, all sorts of cities. Seem and to if be. we rewild our green belts, make our green belts actually function as places for nature instead of just green fields, that will produce you know, enormous benefits in terms of reducing air pollution um, and providing spaces for nature for people to enjoy. I mean, we saw in lockdown you know, how mm. desperate we all need that connection with nature for our own sanity, but our, our, our physical health and our mental well-being. Even some of your well-being. staff here living in London came down here. And Absolutely. needed that. Yeah, work, yeah and, and we saw when lockdown was released, you know, tens of thousands of people came to NEP, and it was an amazing feeling. It was like watching you know, cows at the and beginning migration. of spring jumping out of their, their winter stalls, yeah, you know. A large uh, mammal migration. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Brilliant. So we've, you know, we've... We can we can do it, and I think you know rewilding cities and 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 is is not um, an oxymoron. It is absolutely what we have to be doing because cities, obviously, where our populations are are concentrated, and that is where the movement for change is going to come. And if we are going to combat climate change and restore biodiversity, it's not going to be out here in the countryside so much. It's the will of the people living in cities that will do it. Um, what's the next? So, what's next for for NEP? Or is it just more of the, more of the same? Really? Well, it's you've definitely got beavers now. It, we've got beavers, and in a temporary pen. So, I hope that in a few years' time, you know, they will be beginning to expand out into the rest of NEP, um, and ultimately into Sussex, and do their magical work of restoring water systems. What benefits have you seen from having beavers? Oh, unbelievable. I'm so, sorry you didn't have a chance to go and see the well, beaver no, pen this I, I morning. I saw it from a distance. Uh, I, mean, I have seen beavers in action in Britain. I spent so um, I, you know, a couple of days ago with a friend on her 60th birthday and we sat up there with a bottle of champagne just sitting there very quietly. It's about 7 o'clock at night. 
and it's just the most magical watery kingdom with sallow now behaving like mangroves mm. so you know you're we even had a salmon trout in there the other day i mean this big it's now now we've taken the weirs out in the river it's now migrating up and it's in the beaver pen wow um, i don't know how it's going to get out way. exactly that's the, that's the other problem we actually Sorts created like another yeah. another block for it um but um so the, the the sea trout are now migrating up the um the rivers again um but in that really african summer last year you that beaver pen was like this emerald oasis and heaving with every bird was in there turtle so doves were in the there. there they kept the water there it was green and lush and just heaving that yeah. alone should be you know i think we still have um ambitions the original ambitions when charlie wrote his letter of intent to government 25 years ago was that we would love to have bison um and wild boar um, I think we'd still we'd still love that if we can find a feasible way of of doing that. What's the what would be? Is it just getting the license to? Yes, getting the license to to release them here. Because um, bison have been released into Blean Woods. Yes, is that right? yes, um, they're in a, an enclosure oh, there. Okay. Um, they obviously they would be fenced in by the by the the deer fence here too, but in um, in Europe they're working as a fantastic keystone species. Um, you know, bringing back all sorts of species just by. The way they wallow, they make these wonderful sandy, muddy wallows More everywhere. More than the, the cattle or the pigs? More than the cattle or pigs. They do yeah. it as a sort of territorial thing. Oh, okay, and, so that's um, a totally different... Totally different disturbance on yeah. the landscape. And then also in the winter, they debark trees. So you'll get probably you know a lot more tree felling. So they do a bit like, like the beaver. Yeah. Um, a lot more dead wood, a lot more regenerating in the, in the light coming up. So they're another very dynamic species for a landscape. Um, and maybe water buffalo. Um, I only learnt recently that we, you know, Europe used to have its own um, indigenous water buffalo that we hunted to extinction. But Asian water buffalo are very, very close. Um, and, do the same job. and they do the same job. They, they act almost like a hippo. And we've got a lot of um, water areas, lakes and ponds that are, you know, sort of getting encroached by reeds. To a degree, the horses and the pigs and the deer and the cattle do a good job of trampling trampling them and messing them up a bit but water buffalo really will go deep into those into those river systems yeah so they forge these channels so they make these channels um and then they create these again these wallow ponds inside the reeds just like hippos would do and so um uh you know, you look at a reed bed and you hear, you know, there's lots of birds in it, but actually they're just um, being protected in there. They're just seeking shelter in there. If you can actually create this system of pools in those reed beds, you're creating places where they can actually feed as well. I see. So reed beds can be just a bit of a monoculture. It, it, exactly. Exactly. Break, break them up a bit. It just no, gets even more complex, yeah. even more of a mosaic of habitats if nice. you get the, the disturbers in there doing that. So, um, and what do you say to people when they say, is he, is he, is he, never, never water buffalo in Sussex <laughs> or bison? Beavers, do, do, uh, do you have to... Do you have well, there definitely were beavers. We know that for sure, and not that long ago. So we know they really are a keystone species we need to have back. Um, there's an argument that bison were never in Britain, but their bones are found in quantities on, on Dogger Bank. So the thought that they might have stopped there and not continued on into Britain um, uh, is, is a sort of very odd question, feeling. Fossils don't always tell the true story. But even if they weren't here, we know that what they're doing in Europe is so fantastic for wildlife and for 
ecosystem restoration, that they, they should be here repairing our landscapes. It leads me to one last question, really. So some rewilding uh, sort of, there's an orthodoxy, which is we're taking it back to a certain period of time, but this is more about just bringing nature back in whatever way possible to get as much going as, as possible. I, I, I think that's a really important point because I think, um, and that's why I called my, my first book Wilding, and this is the book of Wilding, because yeah. that little reword of rewilding, people often think, oh, you're trying to recreate a sort of idyllic past where humans didn't have huge impact and you're trying to recover a, a sort of pristine state of nature. That's not it at all. Um, you can't do that. We've changed the world so dramatically. And not just us, but the world has moved on. Um, we don't have the habitat and we don't have half the animals that we had um, a few thousand years ago. But what we can do is take our inspiration from how nature worked in the past, how how you create dynamism in, 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 in a landscape, and use that knowledge to create novel ecosystems of the future. So allow nature to um, use the drivers that it has at its disposal, the large animals, the, the water engineers, the, the worms, the insects, the soil biota, and create what it will out of that. And nature will do the work for us and it will replenish, replenish itself. And the, the wonderful thing, as E.O. Wilson, the great American biologist, said that about diversity of life, the more life there is, the more life there is. Mm. It just completely life carries on growing. So that's so you just wilding, got to allow so nature to do its, its thing. So we'll use wilding and we'll think, like <laughs> a, think like a beaver. Think like a beaver. Thank you, yeah. thank you so much. That's inspiring and uh, and end to a great great morning. Absolute hope pleasure. To come again very soon. So I left Nep with a real sort of a sense of hope in my heart and a real sense that something had changed, profoundly changed in that part of the countryside where it's so rare to be in a landscape where you are surrounded by, just inundated by birds and insects, large animals moving through the glades. It, I, I had to edit it down so much. There was so much wonder there. And, um, well, all I can do is urge you to go back and discover that sort of beautiful place for yourself. And Isabella Tree's new book, which she's written with her partner, Charlie Burrell, is called The Book of Wilding, A Practical Guide to Rewilding Big and Small, published by Bloomsbury. It's a, just a brilliant guide to all the things that they've done at NEP and how you can bring that into, you know, how farmers can bring it into their own landscapes, other land managers, but also gardeners. And even if you have just a window box. So an amazing book, quite a big tome, fantastic reading. And um, I recommend it very much. Talking about discovering hope and calm and beauty, I'm joined in the podcast studio by Jack, Hannah, and special guest Annabelle, who's just dropped by for a cup of tea and we've roped you in. Hello, <laughs> Hello. everybody. Hello. Hi, Fergus. Nice to see you all. Has there been, Annabelle, I'm going to throw you right in the deep end here. Is there a place where you found that deep sense of calm and hope in the countryside or anywhere? Um, well, I, first of all, I'd like to say with your net. Um, experience that's amazing but I think that you you were there for a whole night as well weren't you so I, I think it really helps to immerse yourself for a long time you know my trips are quite short at the moment I haven't been on a sort of overnight but I was today in um, with 
Witham Wood. Is it called Witham Wood? Wis- Wisman's Wood. Wisman's Wood. Yeah. Thank you. I was in Wisman's Wood today um, looking at different types of moss. And actually, it was really calming and really beautiful. And the river, the sound of the river was very calming. And the birds, even in the middle of the day, were tweeting away. But I'm sure it wasn't quite the same as Net. But um, I think the thing about my picture of you and Net when you just said that is it's what you experienced is a luxury. Yes, yes, yes. I saw, of nature. I saw a, a really depressing tweet today of someone who'd cycled through Oxfordshire for miles and miles and miles along hedgerows billowing with hawthorn blossom. And he said, not a single house martin or swift in all that time. And he said, we have been robbed. I can't remember who it was who tweeted. I saw that tweet. Mm. I've, I've got swifts screaming up and down my street in Bristol. Yeah, so There's some around. They're definitely around. There's many around. And I've seen swallows and I've seen house martins. And I think that's, it's just sad if you've seen them in your area. And then, but maybe they're just on their way. Maybe they're just funny. Quite late in May now. I think we have to keep our... Let's be hopeful. Yeah, though. keep, yeah, keep yeah, our yeah, hope yeah. up. Yeah, I keep saw our hope my up. First sweet, I saw my first swift this week. So oh, maybe it yeah. is just that they're a slightly bit, yeah, tiny bit yeah. slower. Um, Hannah, have you... And Jack... Any happenings and sightings? Well, I saw my first swift. <laughs> <laughs> so that was very nice. exciting. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty much it for this week. Really? Mm-hmm. You know, have you been busy? You've been busy, I can I tell. Busy There's a the sort person, of yeah. glint in your eye of, I, I've been extremely busy, Fergus, and um, I haven't had my dose of countryside. Sun's shining outside. Yeah. Yes. Just so I'm you know. Go and have a bit of that. Excellent. <laughs> Jack, any... Uh... I mean, like Hannah, Hannah seen her first swift. I may or may not have seen my first kind of a bird in the past week, uh, which will feature in a, in a future episode. Oh, yes. Yeah. Your first bird, Jack. That's amazing. A certain type of bird that's quite good at fishing. Yeah, it's the great, uh, the great Kingfisher hunt, which we cannot reveal what happened because it's not as obvious. It's a much more complex story than a yes or no, <laughs> did we see Kingfishers. Okay, when will we know? On the 200th episode, which is about four weeks' time. Okay, brilliant. Um, we went recording last week, the three of us. Um, I think we'd, we'd, we'd mentioned in the plod chat of, uh, uh, of, the, of the NEP1, last week's episode, we did mention we were going out and we went out. <gasps> My goodness, what a story we've got to tell. Jack, how have you recovered? I'm not sure. I mean, when when, when you go on a trip with Fergus and Hannah, it, it's, it's crazy enough. But when there's a cave that plays music, <laughs> the, the the potential of seeing your first kingfisher and, and a bit of risky mud, uh, very, very <laughs> exciting day. There's always risky mud. I, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bore you with my story. I've been to, I went to Chelsea, went to Chelsea Flower Show on press day. It was not, um, it was not, it was quite wild, actually. The theme yes. this year is much more embracing nature, letting uh, letting all the sort of hard lines be blurred by w- what might be considered weeds. And it was really interesting how things have changed. There's a sort of re- rewilding, renewable, renewing theme, sustainable. And that was quite inspiring because if it changes at Chelsea, it, it filters out through the rest of the country. Uh, it's like a fashion parade for gardens, and so you've been, Hannah. Have you? I have. Yeah. It's one of the like one of the best days of right. my entire life. <laughs> right, really. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry, I didn't get your ticket. <laughs> sorry. Next year, so garden fashionistas yeah. will be following 
what I, happens at Chelsea Flower Show. I, I, I guess that's what happens with the Flower Show, that the themes are set and people take inspiration from some of those show gardens. Um, but, you know, the, the, the greats and the goods were there. I mean, literally 50% of the people there were journalists and the other 50% were celebrities. So it was a really interesting mix of um, you're making a face. It was actually fun. I was had it? A great, I had a great time. Oh, really? I had a ball. Who, you, who was your favourite celebrity? Oh, Judy Dench was there, the dame. So um, I, I, I wasn't able to interview her, but uh, she, she said hi to Jack. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, there were lots of people, just like interesting gardening people. There were lots of wildlifey folk. Uh, Ellie ha- Harrison, of the Countryfile team, presenting mm, team, mm. got a big hug from her, which was lovely. And she's just great. She writes a column for the magazine, which is brilliant. And we were talking about future themes and ideas. And we got lots of ideas and inspiration from walking around. So much, much fun was had. Looks really good. Really good. Really exciting. What a nice place to be. And then we had a beer in the sunshine after. I was just going to say I found it quite interesting. I think um, I noticed well this this year their their change. You mentioned weeds, and they're changing the phrase to to hero plants. I think it is uh, to sort of change that the 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 opinion on them, which I, I thought was a is a really good fact because uh, they are good. They they're good and they should be sort of celebrated more than they currently are. And I hopefully, like you say, that should sort of flow out into. Sort of everyone's sort of language now. If they, they sort of are the trailblazers with some of these new terms and new techniques. Yeah, are you an anti-weed or pro pro hero plant person? I won't. I won't call them hero plants. But yeah, <laughs> I um I've never called them weeds. But I I I wonder whether people will be able to um what's the word uh, program their robot mowers to avoid. Oh really? Oh, they they haven't reached my part of the world. There's robot mowers out there. They haven't reached. They they they're all over the country. So I don't know. Maybe they're not in your part of the world. But um, that's my worry. And my scarily, my cousin just mowed her lawn a week ago, and I said, "Oh, Uh, I think it's no mow may." And she said, "Oh, it's no mow may." I thought it was mow in May. Oh, so these dear. things can go horribly wrong. Yeah, that's not good. No, they can does go she really leave, horribly does wrong. Does she leave it long for the rest of the year? Then let's let's see <laughs> the other eleven let's months. See. Jack, I believe you've you've got the podcast postbag this week. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Something quite staggering's happened. But podcast postbag has been jam packed recently, which has been brilliant. Uh, I mean, it's it's lovely to hear from people. We've been inundated. There's so much. There is so much. The bag Flooded is with. overflowing. It's, there's that much in <laughs> with, yeah, yeah, with yeah. complaints. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're all from A. Ross or <laughs> Clifton Bristol. Saying, uh, talk, talking about no more mates. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, go on, Jack. This is cool. It's yeah. Positive, Annabelle. Positivity. Yeah. We've, yeah. We're getting rid of weeds and we're getting rid of negativity. <laughs> I think it's it's been brilliant. I think it, it. I just wanted to say, keep it, keep them coming. It's been great to hear from everyone. Obviously, we, we, we get through them all. And it, it's it's from everywhere. We're getting them from America. We're getting them from Europe. They're, they're not just in the in the UK, which is, is really really nice to to read. That's great, Hannah. I think you've got well, our star, our star of the um, ahead of time. Jack sent me this little treat, and it's from Kiki King in the states. They say, "Dear Fergus, Jack, and Hannah, I absolutely adored your last podcast episode with Mike Dilger, in which you went looking for rare plants. Mike was just a delight to listen to, and I love his enthusiasm about plants and wildflowers. I share the same love. One year it was the lupins blooming across fields in New Hampshire. Another year it was the bluebells in the Lake District, and this year it will be the heather on the moors. 
I also really appreciate when you have the authors on the podcast that give me new ideas for books I want to read. And Mike's book is definitely on my list now. In addition, I wanted to say how much I enjoyed hearing all of you together on the podcast, and not just at the end of a commentary. You all add something different to the conversation and share unique observations. I enjoy your dialogue together, and I hope you will be doing more like that in the future. I also wanted to send you a sound as well, so I'm sending you a video I took today, hoping you can hear the sound of a black-capped chickadee, a fairly common bird in northeast of the US. Thanks again for a brilliant podcast. I'm looking forward to the rest of the season. Lovely. Thank That's you, That's really Kiki. cool. Yeah, what That's a fantastic. Lovely. And I, it is nice. I do really love it when we go out together and we're trying to do a few more of those over the course of... Because it's it's fun to have to, to sort of bounce a few ideas around and possibly also take take the mick out of each other. <laughs> it does. We happen. don't do that. Thank you, Kiki. That was brilliant. Lovely. Thank you. We're, we're all boosted by your email and. Um, it's definitely our sound of the week and email of the week. So I've got a lovely book for you here, which I hope you're going to enjoy. It's one that I really love. It's actually an American book, but it's called Keeping a Nature Journal uh, by Claire Walker-Leslie. And it's just a really, really nice book about how to, you know, when you're out on walks, just to record some of the things you find, as you have done. But um, I hope you enjoy it. We'll pop it in the post to you. And as I say, please do get in touch. Love to hear more from you or the email address for the whole podcast team, editor at countryfile.com. So please get in touch. Annabelle, you're looking rather lustfully at that book. Because it's got a foreword. The book's got a foreword by E.O. Wilson. Oh, yes. Who okay. died last year. And he is one of my heroes. Oh, well, Kiki. So watch out, Kiki. I'm just having a, <laughs> I haven't got my eyes on your book. <gasps> Don't worry, Kiki. We'll, um, we'll, yeah, we'll wrestle it off me. Off yeah, Annabelle they'll get it off me. It does look beautiful. Well, we're all, all off for a well-earned cup of tea. Thank you so very much for listening. Join us again next week. We'll have another lovely adventure in the countryside for you. But for now, it's goodbye from me and all the team. <laughs>